All right, so today we have Ash. Ash, welcome to the Founders Lounge. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Ash, so I don't know that much about you, but from what I've seen online, so you run a company called Different, uh, which you say is a startup that helps startups start up, right? So we're yeah. going to talk about that. <laughs> and I think that's your main thing. But then you do uh, a bunch of other things as well. So you're investing, you are on the board of of one or more companies, um, your startup advisor, um, probably some other things that I don't know yet. So um, yeah, looking forward to kind of dive into that and discover what's, uh, what you're all about. Thank you. Yeah, I'm more than happy to, to share, talk about myself all day, I'm sure. Uh, most podcast uh, guests are probably the same. So yeah, happy to. Nice. So can you tell a little bit, just to, just to start, you know, the conversation, what is it that you do? Who are you? <laughs> who am I? Um, so I, uh, those are two questions, right? Um, who am I? That's a, God, that's a big question to answer. Probably one for therapy, I imagine. But um, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, it's the founders lounge. So the whole idea here is like sure. founders sit down and talk about whatever's on your mind, so. <laughs> I gotcha, I gotcha. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit of the therapy side at some point, but um, who am I via what I do is, uh, I yeah, I'm, I'm a founder um, and an advisor and a mentor and uh, mostly just making it up as I go along, pretty much. Um, so I run a company called Different Primarily, which is a alternative to the accelerator experience, basically. So it's a startup ecosystem by subscription. The mission is, very clear it's about making sure that anyone anywhere has access to the entrepreneurial support that they need to start and grow the business they want to build without barriers um, that we have one barrier and I'm working on on removing that one too and we'll get to that later I'm sure which is you have to pay to get in but 12 pounds a month is nothing in comparison with the you know dilution that application uh, the application based accelerators will expect you to do um, the thousands of pounds you'll usually be expected to pay an executive coach um, and or you know the years of time that you'll spend that I spend trying to work it out at the start without having that network and, and that ecosystem around you so mm. that's what difference designed to do um, and I can talk about features and stuff if you'd like but um, but yeah that's that's what I do primarily that's um, a lifestyle business um, pays my extortionate rent and, and just about allows me to survive which is good um, but it's also opened up a bunch of doors, which have opened up the opportunities mm -hmm. that you alluded to there. So I've been lucky enough to be part of the uh, angel investing program um, powered by Ada Ventures um, over the last 18 months, two years. Um, so VC fund based in London, which means I've been able to invest other people's money in cool companies that I like the look of, which is oh, surreal. Mm -hmm. That's cool, um, yeah. And I'll happily talk more about that. Um, and then, yeah, been able to get on the cap table of one company at the moment um i'm an advisor for other companies uh, paid advisor but um a cap table of another company called ecology um, which is a sustainability company they do carbon offsetting um, carbon reduction um, and sustainability stuff by subscription um, in a sexy way i guess is probably the best way to put it in a, in a world where it's otherwise been boring um, mm. and they are a company that came through a different community um proudly to say and ended up on the cap table and just so happened to be probably the fastest growing company we've ever had in the community so i kind of fluked it i would i would say um and yeah they're at 54 people now planted 40 million trees they're about to go on and plant their 50 millionth tree um 000 trees a day i think it is now that they're planting oh wow 
Yeah, it's pretty. That is massive. But uh, I love them. They're great too. So I do a lot of things um, and I'm about to add more things to that pile because uh, why not? Like who needs sleep, right? Um, Agree. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. I was always saying, even when I was a kid, I was like, I never wanted to go to bed in the evening. I was like, it's boring. Why would I? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing fun that happens during the night. <laughs> it's, uh, sleep, I should so. say as a disclaimer, like it is, and uh, we've recently done a session on this actually for the people in the different community is, you know, teachers suck eggs. I'm sure you already know this. It's like the single-handedly the most impactful thing you can do for your mental health and physical well-being is just to get a bit more sleep. Saying I, that, I, I, doing it yeah. is like, yeah, those are two different things. Like, <laughs> it's, it's difficult for me. Same for you, I guess. I completely agree. I actually had somebody ask me recently. I was like, what do you do? Uh, he asked me, what what should I do to have more energy during the day? Uh, or like, which, so like, which supplements should I take to like have more energy? I was like, Number one thing is just get as much sleep as you want and, and, and have a regular sleeping schedule. Number two is probably have like good um, uh, healthy uh, nutrition habits and sports. Then you can think about uh, supplements and everything else. But yeah. Yeah, totally agree. <laughs> so it is important. Uh, but I mean, actually, that's, that's one of the topics that I would love to also dive into towards the end because you do a lot of things and, uh, you know, just how do you structure your day? How do you actually make sure to perform? How do you um, how do you think about all of that? But maybe towards the end, first, I'd love to talk a little bit more about different. And then, yeah, I'd love to talk about your investing as well because it sounds really interesting. I'd love to hear how you, like, how you got into that and how that actually works. Um, I'm just personally interested about that. Um, and then maybe we can talk in general a little bit about just startup advice. Um, I think you'd be the right person to discuss that. So there's some, some topics that I have in mind and then we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, different. So you've been running different for a while already, right? It's been quite a few years. Yeah, um, it started accidentally about the number changes like there's an official number, but I think I'm just trying not to come to terms with like how fast time goes and how how much like age is really creeping up. So I try and stick to a number. Um, I keep saying seven, but it's probably somewhere like eight or nine years now. Um, which is crazy when I think about it and it makes me feel so gross, but, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's also a privilege to be able to run something for so long and not have it fail because that's you know, statistically unlikely. So that's good. Mm. Um, but yeah, accidentally started as a meetup in Bristol and the southwest of the UK. And um, five people turned up and they already liked it, wanted to know when the next one was and we've run them ever since. And yeah, pre-COVID, we were doing 100 events a year, 21 cities, nine countries, all completely free. And Has it always that, been called different or did you no. have a different different name before it had a different name yeah i know it's kind of a meta brand uh, that we've got at the moment um but yeah it was originally i started it as a network specifically for young entrepreneurs um there's a there was a joke along the way that like eventually you're going to be too old for your own network you're going to need to rebrand and and, and uh, here we go <laughs> it was true in part there's a whole, a whole other bunch of stories that go along with that but um but yeah, it started as that, just because I was always the youngest person at a networking event. I was like going out doing biz dev uh, development for my old agency and started with a marketing agency out of university. And like, uh-huh. I was just- Was that out. your first business? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. It was just basically creating logos, branding and websites on Dreamweaver, if people remember that. Um, for I absolutely remember that. That's, remember? that's where my web development career started, man. Dreamweaver that's all the way. <laughs> where loads of people started, I think. And I think we're so happy that things like, 
you know, Squarespace and Webflow exists now because yeah. God, so hard back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, those are the days. Uh, and yeah, and and just you know, started selling stuff to friends, friends of friends, and then people I never knew, and then you know that grew really short, slowly but surely. But I find myself going to events and like. You know, there were a couple of events where people would ask me to get them a drink because they thought I worked there because I was probably too young to be there at the event. And I'm I'm 21 at the time. And I'm like, no, guys, look, I'm like, I'm here. I'm, I'm doing the same thing as you. <laughs> and whilst that was a nice talking point for me, I realized kind of how intimidating that could be for somebody who wasn't mm. like extroverted, at least while they're at work like I am. And that could be the thing that put them off for life. And I'm like, that's not acceptable. We need to create an event that's more accessible, somewhere that people can go and not be assumed as like somebody that works there. And I say this as like a cis white male, right? Like just my age was the thing that was that was getting me like mm-hmm. questions like that. It's the first time I probably ever had that kind of questioning. And I started to realize how much other people might be experiencing it. I'm the only one here, where is everybody else? Wanted to create a community and an environment for those people. So yeah, started it as a network specifically for young entrepreneurs. They could self-identify. I was already really good at branding anyway. So this thing didn't exist. I might as well look it, make it look like it's a real thing and that will attract some people. And so I did. It, it looked like an organization, like a big association. A couple of people turned up, realized that probably actually wasn't the case. Um, and then it was just my, my job to try and convince them that you know we were gonna be that at some point. And then yeah, over mm-hmm. years we, we grew Yenna. To the point where now it's so synonymous as a name with kind of what I do that somebody sent out an email newsletter um, yesterday mentioning me and my company on it. And it still said that I was the founder of Yenna. I'm like, we rebranded like two years ago. Like, old habits die hard. Uh, You know, I think I've actually been to one of your events three, four years ago. I think so. Because now what I'm thinking about Yenna, Yenna rings a bell. and And that was in London. And sure. I think you were here because I, I remember uh, we, we probably met. I remember, man, because now when I saw you, I don't think I would rec- recognize your face. I, would, I don't think I would. It was only once. It was like years ago. But I remember you're like super high energy. I just remember sure. like this guy who was like running the event I and know. you're like super high energy. And you're like everything was like, you know, that kind of gave a lot of life to the event itself. Um, Thanks. I appreciate it. I mean, just the secret is that, like, once that event's over, I go home and I don't want to speak to anyone. Like, that's the thing. Everyone yeah. thinks I'm like that all the time. And I'm like, no, yeah, I'll do yeah. this stuff all day. But as soon as this stuff ends, like, the door locks, I put Netflix on and I just don't want to chat to yeah, anyone. Yeah, yeah. That social battery runs out real quick. But, yeah, I'm glad. If you did come, I'm glad. And, and I hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, and yeah, those events, you know, as I say, sadly stopped because couldn't beat anybody during the pandemic. Um, mm. and we'll maybe go back to them but there are plans afoot so uh, I was thinking about it strategically at the moment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay uh, okay and so that's now evolved into a, what you call a startup accelerator right and that's how, how it's all online it's all is it global how does it work yeah it's all online and global um, it has to be by default like as I say the mission is about anyone anywhere starting and growing a company and mm-hmm. I can't really do that if we have geographical boundaries on things. It really bugs me when programs are run, but you have to be based in San Francisco or London. And, and I get it, I get it because physical cohorts are, are important and, and they're also a key part of the process. But my worry is that the best idea that mankind is missing out on is stuck inside the, the, 
the brain of somebody who lives in the Outer Hebrides or Alaska mm-hmm. or Fiji. And that's scary to me that they don't even have the, let alone access, but the exposure to entrepreneurship and the the permission to go and start something from a network of people around them that are also doing the same thing. Like I'm from 200 yards outside of Bristol officially. And I, it took me three years to figure out even what an accelerator was um, mm-hmm. because there's no, it's not part of the common, you know, nomenclature. It's not part of pop culture. You don't go, okay, I can go into a career. You know what an apprenticeship is most of the time. You know what a normal job is most of the time. Um, but, you don't really know what you know what an apprenticeship version of a job is which might be an accelerator or a program like that mm-hmm. and so we don't get talked about those things so that's what different does is is it provides that for people that that need it and hopefully tries to market itself in a way that is consumer level i would say accessible to the average joe who wants to go and build yeah. something um because at the end of the day what really is an average joe like you know a successful founder is just an average joe that had an idea that worked and mm-hmm. i want to help them make those ideas work Okay, and so I have a little bit of experience with startup accelerators. Um, I used to work for one years ago. That was back in Slovenia. Um, And then when I moved to Switzerland, so I lived in Switzerland for four years. And do you know the Founders Institute? I do, yeah. I know all of them. Okay, cool. So uh, I started a local chapter of the Founders Institute in Switzerland, in Zurich which is, it's a, I mean, it's also a type of an accelerator program, right? But it's a slightly different. So they do take equity, they, they take some equity. So it's a combination, you pay for it, but I also take some equity, less equity than a typical accelerator. But then to compensate that, there's a, um, there's a price for it as well. Um, and uh, so I think it's a three months long program or so. Um, pretty intense you go through that the idea is that you're it's very early stage so you can come with an idea or even without an idea and by the end of the program you should have at least an mvp and maybe a few uh customers at least potential customers so anyways um it was it was really fun it was really interesting it was i loved doing it uh i think we had a few challenges but one of the main ones was one of the main ones was also that there was quite a lot of competition right there were a lot of mm-hmm. there's like other accelerators there's um online courses etc 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 so i'm curious if you think about it as a business how do you position yourself how did you find your you know place within the ecosystem i think we find it in a couple of ways there's a blog i wrote about uh, find uh, about community product fit um versus product market fit product market fit is this you know infamous kind of uh part of building a business which you know, says whether you've got traction or not. You know, people are finding what you're building and buying it without even trying because you've built something at the right time that people are looking for, great. And that's, you know, infamous because it's hard to find. Community product fit is harder to find, in my opinion, because what I did was I built a community of people without even trying to charge them anything. The events were always free, didn't have any intention of building it into a business that I knew mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. just wanted to create a safe space and eventually got to a level of traction where people were asking what they could buy. I had to try and find an answer to that, ask them all what they wanted. They all said something different. I tried to solve for all those things, put them in a box, called it a membership and away you went and people just bought it because they, I think really if they're true with them, true to themselves and truthful with me, I think the reason they bought it wasn't because it was solving a problem. 
it wasn't because it was you know compelling offer at that time i think it was because they wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves communities were becoming Mm -hmm. more and more prevalent at that point and paid communities and free communities i guess a lot of people were probably part of free ones that weren't curated and managed and what they were looking for was a community experience that was a little bit more refined and a bit more looked after and that's what we mm-hmm. were able to give them at the time we were only on facebook so it wasn't like a premium community experience but it was just to be part of something else and arguably it's a really philosophical question arguably that's half the reason why people buy anything right like most cars just get you from a to b the difference between buying a tesla and a citroen c1 is yes speed is yes luxury but arguably because you want to be part of the tesla crowd you want to be part Mm -hmm. of that family and so you pay that premium for that privilege and i think that's probably why people joined it um and probably why people join most things why i've got a a logo of an apple on my laptop because yes it's a better laptop but also you know you get that slight pretension of being able to open it in a coffee shop and feeling nicer than (laughs) than some people you know Mm -hmm. um and that's worth apparently an extra you know, thousand pounds. So, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's probably mm. part of the reason, if I'm honest. Okay, I see. That makes sense. I, I hear a lot about that uh, lately, about um, starting with a community. So if you want to build mm. a product, start with a community first. I've That's something I've never heard about five, ten years ago. I don't know, maybe mm. it was just not, uh, maybe it was not a thing. Maybe yeah, I just didn't pay attention. I don't know. But now I hear about that often. It's like, well, build a community first. And then from that community, learn about what the product actually needs to be. Yeah. I. So this is interesting to me because I think that this narrative is being like proliferated by a lot of people. And I would assume that actually a lot of those people that, that are sharing that message haven't actually done that before. Mm. If they had, they probably would have a different answer. A lot of people that I know that have done what I've done and built communities will tell you it's so much harder. Like if I could go and just build a widget that solves a problem, all I have to do then, this is still difficult, don't get me wrong, but all I have to do then is go and find people that want to buy it. Whereas if I find Um, people that want to buy something and then if you've got a thousand people and you've got to find a common denominator that threads through all of them, find a thing that they think they want but don't need the thing that they think they want but do need the thing they actually need but don't know they need and the thing you want them to have and find the thing that fits in the middle of that venn diagram like that's a journey that so far has taken me nine years and i don't even know whether i'm Mm. quite there yet so i would say and it sounds silly coming from someone that owns and runs a community but hopefully you can take it more verbatim from me than other people who might not have don't do it that way around. Like if you're going to do it, then do it in a step phased approach. Build a small community, a niche one around a subject that's very poignant. Ask people what they want. Build that. Build a bigger community off the back of that. Iterate again and do it that way. Then you've got something nice. But there is a huge danger in building a massive community and not knowing how to monetize it. And we see it time and time again. Clubhouse is a great example. They built Mm. a community around something and a community that had communities in it around something weren't able to monetize, Twitter came along, called it a feature rather than the business, put it in, in their, inside their platform, the company is basically dead. Um, and, you know, you see that with, with other communities over and over and over again. And so, you know, it's dangerous to do that. It's a, it's a tactic and one that has worked for me and others, but you have to have a lot of patience um, to be mm. able to make that work. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. Um, yeah, I think building any sort of community, it just you need um 
there's a lot of competition, I suppose, because if you build a community, it means you're kind of requesting somebody's time, right? Well, you can put a bunch of people into a group, but if there's nothing happening in that group or there's, not, there's no engagement within that community, it, you don't really have a community, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I've ex actually experienced that personally in several examples over the last few years, and I realized how building a community is actually really, really hard. Um, and it requires a lot of work um, because you need to be the one driving the whole thing for a really long time. It takes a long time before any sort of community is in some way self-sustaining, right? When mm -hmm. people just start engaging with it, with each other or like it, it, that it kind of runs itself to an extent. It takes, it takes a lot of time to um, build that momentum. So yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, I also love the framework that you put before, like how um, finding the thing that people think they need. How do you say? Can you say it again? The thing that people think they need. Yeah, I should probably write this in a blog and draw it down somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's like it's a combination of the things that people think they need and don't need. Uh -huh. The p things that people think they need. That's what they're looking need. for, right? That's that's, that's what, what they're really marketing. For. Like that's what they're looking for. Yeah, if I was trying to come up with an example for this, it would be, you know, it's the Henry Ford more horses analogy, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. he built the Model yep. T Ford as the first or the, the first kind of proper, you know, consumer level uh, mass produced car. And if he went and asked people, the famous quote is they would what they wanted, they would have said more horses. That's the thing that they think they want, but they don't actually need. Right. They'll tell you more horses because that's the status quo. That's what they've been used mm -hmm. to at that time. What it takes there, though, from the other end of that scale is a founder vision to envisage a better future, build said thing, and then getting closer to the, the community, convince them why that is better for them. Mm -hmm. Because you'll have still had people when that, when that car was built saying, this is crazy, it's dangerous, uh, it's too quick, it's, it's unreliable. You know, a horse, I only have to give it carrots and it'll keep going. Where do I get the fuel for that? There would have been lots of challenges, but over time he would have taken patience and, you know, hopefully surprised people with value and that would have turned into something. The, the, so that, that framework being, you know, people looking for something they think they need and don't need, that would have been more horses. People mm -hmm. looking for something that they need and do need might have been more speed, more reliability, um, more, you know, uh, capability, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then the thing that people don't know they need, that they need, is probably a new way to do that that is a bit more efficient and doesn't involve, you know, sitting on the back of some living animal. Um, and that's, you know, where he probably came in with that. So, like, that's yeah. why that worked. And there's probably plenty of other examples. I imagine the mobile phone, and I could probably draw a similar analogy with that, right? It was like, you know, yeah, what did yeah, we need yeah. with those things? And, um, and, and, lots of technological advancements so yeah um that's you know that's a framework that i like to use for thinking about business um in in lots of different ways nice okay love it um so okay so if we come back to different um mm -hmm. one thing that i talk about quite a bit on the podcast is growth or marketing or like you know i i think that probably just comes from my personal pain being uh initially a technical person you know i love to build stuff and i was like well build it and they will come but that's not how it actually works then eventually you learn that it's far from the reality <laughs> you need to yeah build but the, the, the focus really needs to be on uh attracting customers or, or users or community members 
how do you approach that? How are you marketing different? Or how do you get, um, you know, new clients? And um, yeah, how does it work for you? I think like the best piece of advice I can give at the same time as telling the answer as to how I do it, um, unsurprisingly, they're both linked. Um, Because I'm not going to give somebody advice about things I don't do, is, is... to do you know this is borrowed advice from i guess is it paul graham um saying about doing the unscalable things um Mm -hmm. doing that sort of stuff sorry um and you know making sure that everyone's looked after so like now because i've built a community that works and we've been doing so for so long people now ask me for advice on how to do that and as a result i've spun up a a consultancy brand called super and basically super is about helping people understand how to create super fans and this is my best uh-huh. advice that i can give around you know marketing is we often take for granted our first customers any customer right someone signs up cool where's the next one the reality is the next one is easier to get if you treat the last one like an absolute god like if you treat them like they're they're way better than they imagine and way more valuable than they imagine they are to you um, and you see this done really well in many different way, in many different places. Um, you know, ho- the hotels are a good example of this. Some hotels will have a box where it says any special requests or anything interesting. Tell us something about you, and you fill that in. And sometimes, if you fill it in, they'll do something for you. If you say, "Hey, my partner's a really big fan of James Bond or whatever," I've seen this actual example, which is why I use it. I've seen this actual example on social media. Um, you turn up and they've got the whole James Bond box set um, and, you know, some uh, a bottle of wine or whatever in the room. Say, hey, have a good night. Um, and they've taken that extra step, a small step, albeit in the grand scheme of things, but the yeah. extra step to really think about you and deliver what you need as a thank you for being a customer. And the, the, the natural, you know, reaction to that is you want to tell people and that you tell people and then they buy into the experience that you had and they want that experience too. And they go and hopefully you can do the same for them. Obviously this starts to taper out when you can't do it at scale and you know, everyone that turns up to your overbooked hotel because somebody had a great experience is expecting something brilliant and they don't get it and then it, it kind of you know plateaus a little bit because you can't buy a box set for every single person in the hotel otherwise you start mm-hmm. to lose money, etc. But mm-hmm. the point being is your next few customers come from treating the last one like an, like, like they're the best customer, the only customer you've ever had. And that's what I do. Somebody will join the community and it's not scalable at all, but every now and again, because we're at that certain level of scale, it has to taper off a little bit. But certainly at the start, I would jump on a call with every single person that joined, ask them about who they are, where they're at, what are they trying to build, what are their challenges, what are their opportunities, what do they need? And you know, cheekily, I was just training myself to be a good advisor, but at the mm-hmm. same time, trying to plug in gaps for them. And I would follow up with an email that said, hey, great to chat to you. Let me signpost four people you need to meet, two things you need to read, two events mm-hmm. you need to go to, three things you need to do. And they, would, they would be so surprised at that value that it would be like, this is amazing. And so what I was doing intentionally was a few things. One, creating a word of my referral. Two, getting a possible testimonial from them that will come back naturally. Three, extending the lifetime of their subscription with me because I know if they join, then if I do nothing, they'll probably be a member for two to three months before they quit and go, well, that was pointless. But if Mm -hmm. I give them that upfront value and still do nothing, not that I will, but if I give them that upfront value and still do nothing, that the very least probably increases that subscription by another one to two to three months. Um, Now, based on my hourly rate, 
and the membership being £12 a month. If I spend an hour on the phone with them, they probably have to be a member for more than a whole year to make that work that, that call worthwhile financially based on my hourly rate. But one, I kind of don't care because I enjoy it so much. And two, the knock-on effect is the most important thing. It's no surprise, I don't think logically, after thinking of all that, that there's a business now that's in place that has enough revenue in it that pays my bills every month. It's not exciting, it's not hyper-growth. I'm working on that, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a sec. But what I have right now is a solid foundation to build from that, again, I don't do this. I do give value to my community because, as you rightly say, it's about curation, it's about management, it's about being present. But worst case scenario, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow and I couldn't do anything for three weeks because I was in hospital, I think that very few people would leave the community because they've already got that upfront value from me when they joined. Mm. That's really cool. I love how you explained that. It reminds me also a little bit of, I was thinking like in, in some, for some people it might be difficult to figure out how do you add that extra value. And it, it, I remembered, have you heard of that Airbnb, I think it's called like 10 star experience or 11 star experience or something. Yeah. Where what they did was, so on Airbnb, when you're done with your stay, you give a rating, right? From one to five. And then at some point they did this ex um, exercise. They said, well, okay, so you can only get, give between one and five stars, but how, what would the experience be? What was, would a six star experience look like? What would a seven star experience look like? an eight star, nine star, 10 star, and 10 star experience was like, you arrive to the airport, there's like a limo waiting for you at the airport, the host opens a bottle of champagne, they take you to like a party in a villa, something, something, right? So unrealistic, but it sets like, it sets a, a standard for, okay, we're, we're probably not gonna do that, but what is the highest possible standard that we are working towards? I thought that was a pretty good experience. And then you, you know, you have a five-star experience, which is uh, maybe slightly above what you would expect, but you mm. try to keep building a system to get better and better and better towards six-star, seven-star, eight-star, nine-star, and so on and so forth. So I think that's a pretty good experience, uh, um, uh, a pretty good exercise just to brainstorm what you might do. And then, and you were, as you were saying, to build those super fans, um, maybe you do some of those things manually at least at the start right to um the easiest I, I love that example um and that's yeah something that you can do and and honestly how do you find that out it's just by asking people that's one of the key things that you can do mm -hmm. i think you know regardless of the business you're building how big it is how small it is and and the sector or, or, or stage you're at really an email from the founder of that company if they've just started or if they're at you know 100 people now is so special because you know you're getting kind of a bit of special treatment. It's even more special if it's mm. personalized. It's even more special if they're very humble and disarming about it. If I sign up to something or join something, it doesn't matter how big the company is, but if I get an email from you know somebody high up the chain, ideally the founder, and they go, hey Ash, like huge thanks for joining this. I've literally just started and it just means a lot to me that you've been part of this. Like, what can I do to help? Um, you know, is there anything, if there's anything that, that you, you have missing in the experience, um, then let me know and I'd love to plug those gaps for you. Um, that's the first and foremost thing you can do. It's free. It takes one minute probably. Um, and, and they'll just really appreciate it so much. Then you can go to nth degrees. You can, you know, 
might get their address somehow during that sign up process, not ever promise anything, send them some merchandise or a handwritten letter or, you know, whatever it might be, find out something about them from their social profile, mm. send something more personalized. You can go really far with it. At the very least, just say thank you, tell them how much it means to, to, to them, and you will earn way more loyalty than you actually realize you will. Um, and, 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 and it works. I've seen it work time and time again. I've done it myself and I'm still here. I've not failed which is statistically unlikely. Um, mm. So like at the very least, I'm doing something right. I'm not gone to the moon, but you know, I'm still here. So like I can attest to it working and, and just love to see more people do it, to be honest. Because if they do, then that means when I sign up to stuff, I just get more really nice emails from people. So I'd love it. Yeah, yeah. There's actually another good example that just came to mind. So I was talking to an e-commerce founder recently. They're pretty, they're pretty successful. I think they went from zero to one million in revenue within three months, maybe six months, wow. in either, either case, it's pretty, uh, pretty what do they fast sell? growth. They sell one thing for a million pounds or? They sell one thing, <laughs> the the price is, let's say around 30 to 40 pounds and it's in the That's beauty space. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And the th she said that they, they tried everything in terms of, you know, how to mm, increase the, the people's satisfaction or just how to, improved their whole experience and said the one thing that had the biggest impact was handwritten thank you notes 100 100 yeah. so if you send which those, is easy here's my, here's my extra tip is if you send those with a tiny little bag of haribo people love it even more we did that once we had a member card i don't even know why we had a member card it looked cool it didn't do anything i can't remember what my intention was but i just created it and spent some money for yeah. no reason had a handwritten letter and a tiny little 10p bag of Haribo sweets. And I put that in an envelope and sent it out to people. And people took Instagram photos of it and exactly, mostly yeah. commented on the sweets. And so I'm like, well, actually, I could have written anything here, but it was just the sweets that really mattered. But yeah, handwritten <laughs> thank you notes are, are huge. Actually, I know um, one of our members has done that for a long time. Um, I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her, but uh, Claudia, um, she runs a lingerie company um, in, out of Bath in, in the UK. And um, and she sends handwritten thank you letters because it's quite a premium product that she sells. Um, so she just wants to say, hey, and it's a very personal experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like lingerie mm -hmm. is probably something that's very personal to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, she, she writes a little thank you letter and her customers love her for it and it gains real loyalty. So, so many people are using that tactic and I just want to see more of it, really. I think it's a really great idea. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay, so you've, um, obviously you've, talked to a lot of founders over these years uh, and you're advising and you know still talking to founders what what are some patterns what are some most common mistakes or most common advice that you need to give um i guess one of the biggest mistakes is that people get bogged down in the detail too much myself included like i do this way too much mm. you forget to sell stuff like that's all the business mm -hmm. is at the end of the day unless you're doing the whole venture scale get to mass market and then figure out how to sell stuff which is dangerous but also i kind of get as a strategy to it if you're trying to build a business just like the vast majority of people not the minority of people the majority of people are trying to build a business that works from day one sell something ideally sell something for more than it costs to to make it and if you could do that then you're onto something and then repeat that process don't get too bogged down in like what's the you know how many visitors are we getting to our website or does our logo look quite right or like is our you know what are our socials looking like if you've got a channel that works for selling stuff 
continue to do that. Some of the best companies in the world are companies we've never heard of just because they don't need to tell us they exist because the thing that they do already works and they just repeat that time and time and time again. And that's it. Like no one's sat in their office going, guys, I think we should have an Instagram account because they've never had one. It never worked. It never needed it. And maybe they should, maybe they should innovate. Fine. But like if you're starting a company, then so many people come to me and they talk about so many nuances in their business. You know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I'm like, do you know what people want yet? And they're like, what do you mean? How do you, how is, how, how do you not know the answer to that question? I get why you don't, because mm. no one ever gives you formal education on how to start and grow a business, which I think is crazy, by the way. I think we should all have entrepreneurial skills, whether we start a company or not. I think it's just useful as an employee. But the, the, the fact that if, if you knew how to, you know, build, sell something for more than it costs to make it, then you've got something. Just repeat that process. And then the other piece I would say is, is, Understand, try, learn to understand people. Lots of people try and understand the 101s of business, how to do social media marketing, how to do X, Y, and Z. What we're really trying to understand with every single one of those masterclass courses or whatever it might be is humans. Humans are your customers. They're your suppliers. They're the people that work for you. They're your managers. They're every stakeholder you have in your business. Without people, commerce wouldn't exist in any way, shape, or form. So if you understand people better, you understand business better by default. You know, you can understand the motivations of why somebody would buy something if you understand value perception a bit more and, more, and mm-hmm. psychology. Um, you don't necessarily know, need to read a sales book as much as needing to read a human psychology book. They're kind of one in the same and would overlap a lot. Um, so I'm not saying don't read either, read both ideally, if you have time, if you're a reader. But yeah, understand people, give to them where possible unconditionally and, and it will come back. And I don't mean that in like a, you know, a, a holistic way. It's logical, it actually will, mm-hmm. scientifically, that will happen. Um, and then, um, and then yeah, and then sell some stuff, frankly. Like don't overcomplicate it, just go and do some stuff. Makes sense. Again, especially uh, myself being a technical person, technical people love to build, hate to sell. Yeah. And that's a very painful lesson that you learn, sometimes even multiple times, that just because you think that you should build something, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, anyone's going to buy it. Uh, which is which is actually, so <laughs> to some extent, I said something completely different on the, on the my previous episodes, um, but so maybe I need to explain that. Because... It is true that it is it can be very good to solve your own problem, but there, it, there are two different things: solving your own problem or building a solution for something that you think might be a problem. Very, very different. A lot of founders that I have on the podcast they built a solution for their own problem, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, that again, not always, but very often, it means it's a real problem. It was painful enough for you to start building something, and if you're experiencing that. I mean, chances are pretty high that there are a few other or a few thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people with that same problem, right? Um, the, the challenge is when you build something that you think is other people's problem. Now, that's, that's where you enter very dangerous territory, right? 100%. And I think, you know, somebody said, I think I saw it on Twitter recently. Somebody said the best way to do marketing is to build a product so good it markets itself. And I mm. get it, I don't necessarily agree, because you can sell something underwhelming if you know how to sell, 
but if you yeah. have the best product in the world and don't know how to sell then you're not going to get any customers yeah. one of those is a business and the other one is a nice little side project that never yeah. goes anywhere and that's it we've we all of us have bought something that's a bit rubbish but the person who's selling that is probably making money and and living off of it. I would never advocate selling something rubbish. I'd never try and build anything rubbish. We hopefully nobody will. But as long as you can sell something, you have a business. Whereas you can have the perfect solution to the biggest problem in the world, but if no one knows about it, yeah. you've got no business. You've just got a yeah. really great secret, <laughs> and that's, yeah. Yeah, that's not really going <laughs> to pay your bills. So yeah. I agree with that so much. And I feel like sometimes it's almost controversial to say that. Uh, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not the best product that's going to win. It's the one that has the best distribution. That's, that's, that's just the reality. <laughs> so, yeah, Ideas, by all means, go ahead. I, ideally, it's both. By all <laughs> means, go ahead and build the best product. But what's arguably more important is to build the best distribution because otherwise somebody else is going to come along with shittier product, better marketing, and you're going to lose or exactly lose. Like. exactly oversimplification but as long as the unit economics work you've got great distribution and a really good product you're winning that makes it sound so easy to build a company it's still not but like you know mm. we work's a good example amazing distribution a really great product you know going and having a desk that i can go and get a, a beer on draft at, at any time of the day sounds amazing then you look at their unit economics and you're like oh this isn't going to be around forever because it just doesn't make sense like that doesn't add up. Theranos, great potential unit economics, great business, never actually even had a product. So like that mm. was great, got to the point where like it was massive, didn't actually work because it was didn't exist and now the founder's going to jail. So like mm. ideally the unit economics work, the product's great and your distribution's good. As I say, that is an oversimplification because if if it was that easy, everybody would do it and we'd all be rich and happy mm. and living on beaches. But um, those are the fundamentals. Get those fundamentals right and you know, everything else is just noise, really. Mm -hmm. So true. It's so true, man. That was a, a painful lesson that I personally had to learn as well. I always thought, man, yeah, you just need to build the best possible thing. But, but that just, it's, it's kind of, it's like utopia. That's not, that's not really what all your focus should be going into because you just, then you just, well, we all have a limited amount of time, right? And so, actually, still there. It says that the yeah, video... Sorry. Oh, okay. I don't know why the video just paused. Okay, all good. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, cool. um, disabled. It says the video has been... Oh, the video is still recorded. Okay, sounds all good then. Cool. Um, 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 what was I saying? Yeah, so we all have a limited amount of time. So all the time that's not going into marketing or that's going into over-perfecting something... Yeah. is not going into distribution, right? So again, not saying that you shouldn't build a great thing, but just that you need to be smart with where your time is going, obviously. 100%. Um, cool. Okay, then let's talk a little bit about your investing. So you said you're mm -hmm. an investor at, uh, what is it called again, the, the fund? Yeah, so I guess this is that's the easy way to describe it as investor at, but I'll explain what that actually means because it's not technically accurate um but the fund is called ada ventures um so they're a vc fund in london started up as a 30 million fund i think they extended their first fund to 50 million i think euros i, would, I think mm -hmm. that's uh in um and they invest their thesis publicly is invest in over uh, underrepresented 
uh, overlooked founders. Um, so what they and, and markets. So they're trying to basically put their money into places that otherwise wouldn't see money like that. Um, which you know is slightly paradoxical because those people, if they're underrepresented and overlooked, often don't know how to be found um, or that stuff even exists. I didn't know what VC was when I first started up and it took me years to even come into contact with it. But they're doing what they can to try and reach those people. They started off by doing it via a community of scouts um, and I'll happily explain what that means. And uh-huh. then that exaggerated in, uh, sorry, exaggerated, that developed into a, uh, a, mar- a, a program of angels, which is what I've yeah uh, been able to humbly get involved in. Um, and be part of and that's where I've been able to do the angel investing at least practice angel investing um, with with their capital which as I say is kind of surreal but yeah happy to explain all of that yeah how exactly does work does that work very practically so you obviously you you know you're exposed to a lot of startups Um, a lot of them might be underrepresented you're also because you you run different that's a global global business so yeah more practically I'd love to understand a bit better Sure. Yeah. So you shortcut a lot of that there for me, which is, you know, Ada Ventures is a two-person GP fund, Matt and Czech, and they both, by their admission and their words, not mine, are you know white Oxbridge-educated uh, level individuals who therefore have certain nepotistic networks they're naturally going to come into contact with. Those people that that they're coming into contact with naturally probably don't align with the thesis of trying to represent and invest in underrepresented overlooked founders and markets and so they recognize this the important thing i guess about privilege is recognizing you have it and then doing something about it and or with it and that's what they're trying to do which is why i respect um and uh, as a result they've gone okay how do we widen our net um in a unbiased way you know because some people try and funds especially try and widen their net doing a do it in a biased way you know we're going to do female founder office hours and then they'll go out to their networks and find those people and it's very you know i don't know whether this is the right word now but positively discriminant basically and it it opens the net but in a very specific place that closes the net for other people continuously still that's kind of weird whereas ada basically said what we're going to do is we're going to open the net and we're going to do it via people that and enable people to do that people that don't otherwise have access to vc as a career choice but may be interested in the the sector the industry in some way shape or form as part of their future and so they started off with i think it was like nine community scouts and the scouting model is this you probably have a community yourself. I do through different. We saw thirty-one million pounds of active deal flow over the last two years. Uh, it's annoying to me because I can't invest in them because I don't have the liquid capital to do so. I'm still a founder myself. Um, I'm just trying to connect them with investors. Ada have gone great. You got people we'll probably not meet until much later or at all. You get to meet them far earlier than we do and from lots of different places. As a scout, first and foremost, I'll get to the angel in a second, but as a scout, if you send a deal to us and we invest in it, then we'll give you a kickback. And that kickback is Mm. fairly ethical in the fact that it will be a percentage of the deal value that they'll invest. I think it's 5% of the deal value up to 5K. You can Mm. take that in cash if you want, but you can also, this is a really cool thing, reinvest it into the deal. So if you go, Mm. I'd like to build my, my portfolio, my track record, I will take that 5K or a percentage of that 5K, it's up to you, and put that into the deal and then start to build that track record because someone else has invested in it. That's really cool. The number of scouts now, I think, is like 100. So they've really widened that net and they're probably getting, it's two GPs and just, I think, one full-timer and one part-timer in, in, the, in the fund at the moment. So they're probably getting too uh-huh. many pitch decks to even cope uh-huh. with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, then 
that takes a step up about 18 months, two years ago now, um, where they said, okay, cool, got that. Raised our first fund now, got a little bit of money to play with, a lot of money to play with. Um, and their LPs, the investors in their fund, um, were okay with this concept of, of angels. They're not the first people to do it. I think Sequoia probably were the first funds to do it or one of the bigger funds to do it in the US. Um, and Atomico have done this before, uh, Ada in the UK. Um, and Europe, and basically what they do is they take a percentage of their fund, <clears throat> a small percentage albeit, um, in this case it was 250k of what at the time was 30 million, so just under 1% of their fund size. And then they say what we're going to do is we're going to give that to, in their case, five people, so 50k each, and then you guys go and invest that almost completely autonomously in line with your own thesis, in line with your own assumptions, and uh, and what the intention is there is that the fund gets a lot more really early stage bets in companies that are too small for them mm. to really do as a fund because mm. Chet Warner actually wrote a really great article about the unit economics of a fund, which I recommend everybody interested in investing reads because it really helps you understand why funds say yes and no, some, no sometimes because sometimes the, the, the economics just don't work. You, you couldn't get enough of a return to make mm. it worthwhile. Even if you love that idea, it's not going to work. Um, and so, yeah, so they get five times uh, five, 25 stabs at tiny companies that are earlier than they'd ever look at but obviously what they get strategically is they get to watch those 25 companies if one of them starts doing really well mm. then by the time they're raising the amount that ada could invest that they'll invest that money um, and double down on that deal which i think they've done once or twice now um don't quote me but i think it's, it's once or twice that they've done that so it's working um and then what we get as angels how it works practically for us is we get to build our track record even more so than the scouts might be able to because we're actually making decisions. They put us through uh, Andy Aim's uh, angel investing school, um, which rounded our rough edges. You know, we thought we knew what we were talking about, but really roughly, he really helped kind of like uh, work us through some assumptions and gaps in our education. They helped mentor us and guide us through that process. You know, what were we doing right? What could we improve upon? Um, and, and, and the rest of the time, really, and I think this is the brilliant part of it, left us to it, which is crazy when it, it sounds crazy when you think about it, but it's probably the most powerful thing. It's like, I'm about to make a decision five times with 10 grand of your money um, each time. And for you to just be like, cool, go and pick it. It's kind of dangerous. Like if I, obviously I'm not gonna rock up with, hi, I've got a great company you should invest in. It's called Ash's Holiday Fund number two. Like that's probably <laughs> not the sort of thing they'd, they'd end up signing a check for. They sign the paperwork and they write the check, but everything up to that point of writing the deal memo, why I would invest, why the timing's really great, why the team's good, mm. I do. And then I make, ultimately I make the decision and so do all the other angels make the decisions whether the money's gonna go in. And yeah, I've, I've basically completed it now because I'm out of money. So um, I've done my deals, five or six of them. Um, and, uh, and it was really fascinating, really, really great process to be part of. And I think they're gonna expand it this year for potentially even more angels to come on board. So I'm excited to see them do that. That's awesome. That's really cool. Love it. Do you think, so do you think you'll keep doing it or that's that's the like the amount of money that you were able, able to get and? We'll see. It was the first time they've done it. So I know their words, um, you know, they're, they're figuring out what the next one looks like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a completely open book. They're open to feedback from us. Obviously there's two trains of thought for me. One, a bias one of like, give me more money. I want to do this too. Like I want to carry on doing this forever. It's great. Yeah. 
But also the other train of thought is other people deserve this opportunity too. So like, it would be great to see more people come through. Um, arguably, I've got five, six deals under my belt and one that I privately did, you know, passively via ecology beforehand that's going really well. Arguably, I've got a small portfolio of traction now that I could go out and mm-hmm. raise a small fund on. Um, so there's so many different options. There are also loads of other angel programs. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I'd recommend anybody to apply for them if they're interested. But unsurprisingly, I'll probably go and apply for any others that are open as well as and when this might round up. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. Because it would be great to you know, build a fund at some point. Building a fund off of six deals is maybe possible and fine. It'd be great to do it off of 20 deals, 30 deals, even more deals that, that I could do through other programs. But these angel programs are becoming more and more prevalent. So there will be more opportunities for more people to get involved in them at some point soon. Nice. Well, maybe so. Maybe you can send me a link to some of them. We can uh, add to the um, episode description for anyone who's interested. I personally would be interested, um, but yeah, probably someone else as well. Happy to. Nice. Um, and what was your so final question on this? What was your approach? Um, you know, so obviously, as you said, it's kind of a big decision. Um, you know, <laughs> how did you um, approach that what was your thinking you know who's who's a good investment who's not maybe even how many deals did you look at yeah i mean i saw deals a lot as soon as you announce that you're part of the program the amount of pitch decks that you're already getting increases by like two three four times so there's kind of a Mm -hmm. field of dreams business model you know say you're you're involved in vc and the pitch decks Mm -hmm. come um and then you you have to do the the work to try and filter through them um Naturally, I'm a cheerleader for anyone building any business. That's literally what I do for a living, right? People come into mm. different, and it's my job, whether they're building a small flower shop or a massive AI company, to figure out how I can help them succeed, cheerlead them, tell them they're awesome, find their gaps, help them improve them, and, and go go onwards. Um, doing that uh, with a VC hat on or an angel hat on is nice, but not conducive to making good decisions. I found really early on that I got off the call with everybody and was just so excited I wanted to give everyone money. Probably not the best way to build a fund. Um, Mm. And so I had to kind of figure out a way to get around that. And actually, this is where, like, you know, the advice from Ada came in really handy. Um, I sat down with Matt at one point and, you know, he was talking about how you let let it soak in try not to try to mitigate this the emotional reaction still be supportive and helpful obviously but and i'm paraphrasing here but like try and mitigate the so the emotional reaction to it which is genuinely generally wholly positive um and wanting to be helpful and then uh, wanting to invest um and then sit with it for a few days and then see how you feel Uh after a few days and i molded this into my own version which i've called like my excitement metric which is uh, beneficial for both me and the founder where I'll try and do it uh, for about seven days feels like the right amount of time it's not too long to keep somebody waiting for an answer but long enough to, for me to really know the answer to my question which is am I still excited about this when I get off a call I'm probably excited by default fine let it sit with me if seven days later I'm still excited about it and I'm talking to my friends about it and I'm talking to other people about it and, and I'm, I'm you know introducing them or doing something it's a signal of some kind like it might, mm-hmm. I might not know what the signal is, but it's a signal that I should continue looking at this for some reason, dive a bit deeper. If I'm not doing that seven days later, it's probably for a reason. That's mm-hmm. not to say that the company's a bad company. It's not to say that the founder's a bad founder. It's just that I'm probably not the right investor for it. Because if you're raising money, you want a founder that's gonna be really excited, uh, an investor that's gonna be really excited about what you're building. Not someone who's mm-hmm. just out in the background like, yeah, okay, did a deal, but 
not, don't really care about you guys. Like, why would you want me for that? So if seven days later, I'm not super excited about it, I'll come back to you and say, look, for whatever reason, not super excited about this, just doesn't get my excitement going. Doesn't mean you're bad. Go and find someone who loves what you do. In some cases, in one case, actually, it was like a childcare platform. Can't remember what the company was. Um, it was like a childcare platform. I don't have kids. I got it. I was excited about it initially on behalf of my friends. I could see where this would really apply. Um, but that wasn't super, like, uh, super important for me. And so, you know, I forgot about it basically a week after because mm -hmm. I hadn't had the daily problem that that thing would have solved to keep me thinking about yeah. it and keep me interested. So that was that. But then, you know, more nuanced, um, we had to come up with a thesis and, you know, start with the basics, B2B SaaS, uh, software companies for businesses. You know, that was kind of where I started. I run a company that manages businesses. So I get to see their gaps and problems and probably make astute decisions on software that could solve those. Um, communities was a special point, obviously, naturally, it's kind of my field. Um, yeah. I think branding um, and good design is a key differentiator. Um, so that was something that I was looking out for. But one thing I ended up on, which I was excited about and would love to continue in a new fund and or any other angel program, is this, the gaming space. Um, I grew up a gamer, uh -huh. still am one. Um, uh -huh. And I understand that space deeply. And I understand the business space deeply. And I think there are a lot of people that understand gaming deeply or a lot of people that understand business deeply. Uh -huh. I don't think there's a huge amount of people in the middle of that Venn diagram. So I was like, hey, I'll be one of those people. There's not enough of them, I'll go be one. And uh, yeah, did two deals at least, three kind of actually, um, in the gaming space in different ways, and, um, and wanted to start building a bit of a thesis around that. So yeah, big old brain dump there, but uh, gives you an idea as to what I was thinking and, uh, and what I ended up doing. Very cool. Um, very exciting. Nice. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, we mentioned, we mentioned time before we mentioned, uh, how to allocate your time, how to allocate your energy. Um, obviously, you know, if you're a type A ambitious kind of person, as you uh, clearly seem to be as well, you want to do all these different things and, you know, build a business and start another business and run a community and invest. And yeah. it, I think most of the things that you do, they seem to fit together, which obviously makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I'm just curious, how do you, you know, how do you think about that? How do you just generally manage your time and your energy? And um, do you have any particular tactics or strategies or like weird habits or, you know, how do you think about that? Um, short answer is badly at the moment. Um, <laughs> for Like I've been up and down over the years. I've either been really great or really bad. Um, and at the moment it's kind of bad, but I think it's probably a part of, I think I'm still like coming out of the other end of burnout. Like you don't know you're in it when you're in it, but I, d I think I, I think I did, I was suffering from it without knowing it. Um, but also, which is unsurprising because mm. a lot of people had it during COVID, right? Like it's just one of those mm. things you go through two years of a pandemic. It's normal. Same time there's this like current self-diagnosis because it's taking ages to get an actual diagnosis of ADHD um, or ADD, whichever one it might be. I'll find out eventually. Um, which was a massive weight off my shoulders when I really finally discovered that's probably actually something I have and, and an unlock for me, but also a new weight on my shoulders of figuring out how the hell that I use mm. that to my advantage and adapt mm. my time accordingly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm at the mo I guess at the moment, right now, as of right now, a little bit bouncing all over the place, but with the ADHD consideration or the likely, uh, cause I don't want to say I have it until I'm fully diagnosed, but, um, 
I'm leaning into it as if I do. And one of the things I've always found is that reading business books, you know, the one thing and books like that that tell you to focus, yeah. focus, focus. I've read it, understood it, agreed with it, but just never been able to do it because yeah. it's not the way I work. Whereas I'm really good when I've got lots going on. Um, yeah. By default, everything gets better. So I decided this year, you know what, I might as well just experiment with that and, and, mm. and see what happens if I do multiple things at the same time on purpose. So different runs as different does. You know, I've got it to a point where it, within re- it doesn't run itself, nothing does, but like it, it, it's close to that point. It, it, I can do a lot with not a lot on it um, as far as input goes consultancy work that I've got um, happening in the meantime um, it's just me basically taking a mental break out of the business and working with other people's because it's fascinating to me to see what's happening there and it's keeping it close to home because the client that I have primarily with that at the moment is ecology so I get to go and see what you know what I saw starting at the start with three people looks like now at 50 odd people and is, is launching new stuff and that's kind of really amazing um, and then I'm also working on a new concept, which is basically what could different do, what could different have been, knowing everything I know now with venture backing, using the technology exists now, and where could it go? And I'm really excited about that. And that'll be, arguably, if it works, it'll be the biggest business I'll have ever built um, and, and, and you know, offer the foundation of everything I've done to date. Um, but by default, in thinking about all those things and working on, on all three of those things at the same time, they're all better than if I was just doing one of them, which sounds mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. wrong and incorrect versus everybody else's normal teachings, but it's just what works for me. So that's the main thing. But there is something that I like to kind of try and practice where I can, which is more applicable to other people and everybody else, which is this notion of, um, I'm sure other people say this better than I do, but the notion that I like to kind of describe as like purposeful work and purposeful play. Um, and I've said this a couple of times before to people where like, some people, I know I've got one friend who has, I've got two screens here um, and he's got two or three or four, I don't know, he's works in IT, he's like you know, mega desk setup, and um, and he'll watch the US office, for example, whilst doing work as background uh, noise. But yeah. I can't do that. One, because I, I just can't. My brain doesn't work yeah. that way. If I can't have music yeah. with lyrics on while I'm working. I can't write a good email because of yeah. focus. But I can't really enjoy that if I'm sending an email and I can't really send a good email if I'm trying to enjoy that. I've never done both properly at the same time. So what I mean by purposeful work and purposeful play is when you're on, be on and focus on that. And when you're off, be off and focus on that because both Mm -hmm. of them benefit from each other, right? Actually, when you aren't working, you're cognitively processing the stuff that happened during that day. You're mentally and physically recovering so that you can go again and work at these people that brag about working 11, 12 hours. You know, if you have to do that, fine. I've done it. I've been there. My friends used to call me Mr. No Days Off and I used to be proud of that. Now it's about actually how much time can I take off because that will make me incredibly productive in the time I actually have on. So, you know, don't be sad or, you know, I guess ashamed of watching a series of an evening or going for a really long walk or taking a long weekend or whatever because actually all you're doing is improving your capability of delivering great work so that when you're back you don't have to worry about having the tv on or the us office up here or worrying about what's happening in the background spend four insanely productive hours or seven or 12 or whatever it is for you but insanely productive hours at your laptop or whatever a business it is you have your you know sanding down doors or whatever it might be 
but get so focused on that that you do the best work you've ever done, do it really well, do it really quickly, and then you get back to being able to do really fun stuff again and repeat. That's that's how I like to think about that stuff. So it's really interesting. If I if I understood correctly, you basically did a little bit of a mindset shift at some point. You were like, you know what? It's not about working 12 hours a day. I really want to focus on having that quality free time or leisure time or whatever it is. And that affected your productivity during the hours when you were actually working, right? 100%. 100%. You can work 12 hours and be... Yeah, if you work, it's a simple sum. You work twelve hours, and you work twelve hours at fifty percent optim, uh, optimal, you know, pr- productivity. Or you can work six hours at one hundred percent productivity. Like the maths works out exactly the same. Um, and so, what are you really doing if you're only working fifty percent productivity for twelve hours? You're only you're wasting time. Um, and you're not really doing your best work. And if you're not doing your best work, you probably aren't enjoying it that much. And work feels like a chore because you look at the clock and it's 10 p.m. and you're like, oh, well, I've worked so long. I've not really enjoyed myself. And that's a piece of maths that can work for a little while. But after a while, I found and I've seen and observed in so many other people that that just ends up in burnout or some other situation where you become, you know, uh, you, you become um, resentful of the work that you're doing because it's not rewarding you with the ability to go and do the things that you were promised before you started started your business, which was you get to make your own hours, you get to go and do cool things. You get to make your own hours and go and do cool things, that's great, but if you work for 12 hours a day, you don't get to go and do those things. A year later, you're going to be wondering why the hell you even started because you're angry at yourself that that's the case. Whereas if you work productively for half the time, then you get to go to the gym and have a barbecue and spend time with your family and game, go to the cinema, whatever it is you need to do, both as a reward for doing great work in a mm. shorter amount of time and two, as a recovery piece ahead of doing more great work, which can then be rewarded for and that, and that loop continues. So, you know, there's a balance. I'm not saying you can get all the best work you'll be able to ever do done within half an hour and then go enjoy mm. the rest of your day and do that every single day. Maybe it's possible. It depends on your job, but um, but yeah, I think I think the narrative needs to be shifted um, around what success looks like and success needs because the the answers to that, especially on Twitter, are so skewed by like you know these these this hustle porn culture that I think we're coming out of now, which I'm glad, but um, you still see yeah. it. Somebody tweeted yesterday. Actually, I showed somebody on my screen yesterday. And it was like. How many hours a week do you, uh, how many hours a day do you work at the moment? I work 11 to 12 hours. And I was like, I don't know whether this tweet is like uh, almost like an admittance of guilt, like I would like to improve mm-hmm. this. Or I'm worried that this tweet is actually kind of a brag to say I work mm-hmm. more than you. I think that was probably what it was. And I'm like, cool, good for you. Someone, the first reply that was most, it got ratioed basically. The first reply afterwards was from a guy I follow and I think he's hilarious on Twitter, which is literally a screenshot of his time inputs on a spreadsheet that he probably uses as a time tracker. And it was like six hours 20, five hours 30, four hours 30, mm-hmm. six hours 30. Like he was putting that much work in every single day. And as far as I could see, he had a larger business than the person that had originally tweeted, mm-hmm. who's really winning there. Um, so yeah, it's, I've got some beef with it, but it's, it's not wholly practical. Some people have to work 12 hours. I did. I had to do it at the start. Mm-hmm. You just, and you love, and if you love it, then crack on and do it. Like if that's mm-hmm. what you would be doing, if, 
if money wasn't an object and you had no other hobbies going on, then go and do it. My, my job is kind mm. of a vocation, but balance it with other stuff too before you burn out, frankly. Very interesting. Uh, I, I'm tracking my time as well. And it's one of the biggest game changers for my personal output and productivity because it just made me realize where my time is really going. Because mm. if, if until like before I started tracking my time, sometimes there were just like three hours that passed by and I was like, I have no idea what I've done for the last three hours. I just, I literally don't know where those three hours went. Um, and then tracking my time changed things completely. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing that forever. Uh, I'm tempted to, I actually said, I'm going to do an experiment. I'll do it for a month and then I'll just do it maybe for a month per quarter or for a month every half a year or whatever. But now I just keep doing it because I kind of really enjoy just seeing at the end of the day where my time went or at the end of the week, you know, where, where did my time go? Um, but I'm curious, so you mentioned um, being productive or doing your best work. What does that mean for you? Because I realized that I actually had to think about it. Like, what, what is it that, you know, what makes me productive? Or like, what is productive work? Um, there are so many things that at any given moment, you could be working on a hundred different things and... Um, their interruptions and you know what is it for you yeah that's a really good question and i think it differs for everybody else for me i would probably the reason it's a good question is because i don't have a defined answer to this yet but um i would probably put productive work into a couple of boxes one would be what practically moves the needle for the business right now um and the other if there's two there might be more um would be a box of time that opens up opportunities for other things and new things um, mm -hmm. because I think if you only move the needle on the current parts of the business then you close off opportunities for growth into new places but if you only do opportunities for new stuff and don't move the needle on the growth in the current business then you're not affecting your day-to-day -day and the business won't grow in the immediate in the immediacy so yeah i would probably put it into those two boxes and i think i should start tracking my time actually so i'm going to take your tip and do that i wonder if there's an automatic one that tells me how long i've spent on different tabs because i would love to know how much time i've spent on linkedin and twitter there's a there's a thing called uh time something i think i can send it to you i don't remember sure. um time i don't remember i'll send it to you afterwards send it to me. um I personally use Trello right now. So what I use right not Trello, uh, Toggle. Toggle, yeah. Toggle, nice, I personally yeah. use right now is Toggle and this uh, plugin that just sends me a reminder every 15 minutes to track my time. Nice. Because I prefer to do it retroactively because Toggle, how you typically use Toggle is you just, you know, you turn on the timer and it's, it's counting and then you turn it off or like whatever and you create a new task or whatever. Um, I really didn't like that. What I, what I prefer much more is every 15 minutes, I'm reminded, I'm like, okay, what am I doing right now? Or what mm -hmm. have I done over the last 15 minutes? And then I entered uh, um, that block of time into the toggle time tracking kind of thing. It's super easy. It's two, three clicks. Um, I, I, you can create projects or tags if you want to, you know, divide it between different projects. Um, you can create tags, which I actually don't do because that just makes it a little bit too complex. And I just don't want to, obviously, this kind of thing needs to be super simple. Otherwise, you just don't do it. Um, 
I, I would be tempted to somehow measure the um, impact or the you know is what I was doing right now is that actually was it impactful or was it not impactful and if it was not then I should probably rethink you know that's that's maybe not the best use of my time I should figure out should I have just not done it can I automate it or delegate it or whatever it is um, but yeah wasn't absolute game changer for me so yeah that's good I want to check it out toggle toggle track is actually uh, was uh, one of the leads on it was from somebody in uh, a different community so that's kind of full circle I'll drop Ryan a line <laughs> and say hey uh, and tell him that you're using using it as well so uh, yeah I'm sure nice. he'll be pleased to hear that but yeah good tips I will uh, I'll definitely start doing it nice um cool well i think that's a wrap is there something that we forgot to talk about uh the only things i remember because you mentioned these on uh, email to me and i spent so long trying to think of them the ideas yes the ideas yeah yeah so let's go so your idea so obviously what you asked me was ideas that people could steal and i have like 14 ideas a day just like most founders do and so here's actually something this is like a little hack that i tell people about and some people might use it as well um this is like a final piece of advice i guess is i have like a mental shelf um it's like i'm a visual person so i think uh -huh. visually anyway i've got my good mind's eye so i picture a shelf on my wall usually and um and so what i do with ideas is i put them on that mental shelf if they're good enough i'll mm -hmm. put them on the shelf sometimes if an idea will be fleeting and you're like meh probably actually wouldn't work so don't worry about it mm -hmm. If it's good enough, it goes on the mental shelf. And then if it falls off, quote unquote, falls off that shelf, probably wasn't a good enough idea <laughs> and or I probably wasn't excited enough about it. Because mm -hmm. um, if I go and find it and it's not there anymore, then rather than writing it down, lots of people say write stuff down. And I'm like, if I write stuff down, then actually it's catharsis gets out of my brain. But I don't think about it anymore. Uh -huh. And actually that's dangerous mm -hmm. because if it mm -hmm. was a good idea, then I forget it because it's in a book somewhere. Very interesting. But yeah, it's okay. also, yeah. So if I have a mental shelf, I put it on a mental shelf. And then if it is still there and it stays there for long enough, it tells me I should probably do something about it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's basically like my, my temperature check on whether I should action things. Or not. <laughs> um, so that's a little hack. But um, there's a couple on there that I, I won't love, share. by the way, sorry for interrupting, but I love how you have this how do you call it? Like a gut feeling kind of processes for things? Yeah. So this is one of them. The other one was the excitement about the idea. Really interesting. I'm like the opposite. I would create a spreadsheet for everything and then like put some, you know, um, rated based on 10 different criteria and then I'd have a number in the end and that would be my decision. Really interesting. That's probably a better way to do it. Honestly, <laughs> like, I don't know. All I know, I don't know. is <laughs> Like, life's short, and everything I do, I want to enjoy. Like, if I wanted to be rich, then, like, humbly, I probably would be by now, right? I probably could have gone and hustled my way into a banking job and got, you know, mm. 150 grand a year plus bonuses or whatever it is to get wealthy. But I haven't done that, so it tells me something. <laughs> it can't be about money for me because I'm not rich yet. So what is it about? And it's about impact sure probably a bit of narcissism otherwise you wouldn't do podcast interviews with people when they ask you and also it's probably about enjoyment and so the gut feel for me i guess is it's also probably an enjoyment factor it's like i want mm. to enjoy every minute of something that i'm working on which is why it's almost impossible for me to go back to a quote-unquote normal job because the moment that 
I do that is the moment I'm not fully over in control of my enjoyment. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's something that factors in for me. It's probably not the most astute decision, which is why your spreadsheets probably make you more money than mine's, mine do. But yeah. You know, it depends. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a psychologist, and I always, you know, I always discuss, I've got like this framework for this and that framework for that. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, those are your frameworks that you prepare with your rational mind. There are so many factors that you don't consider with your rational mind that your mm. gut might actually consider much better I'm like shit yeah i mean the, that, that yeah makes sense as well the gut's powerful like every time i've followed my gut and there's confirmation bias here because you probably don't remember the ones that you got wrong but most of the times i followed my gut i've been right and most of the mm -hmm. times i've heard my gut gone against it and done something else i've been wrong so i'm like well mm -hmm. i I'm an armchair scientist, like I've got new scientists on my coffee table. I enjoy science, but I'm not qualified in any of it. So I, I understand the fundamentals of lots of things. And all I can do is draw parallels and go, there's a pattern that exists there. I might as well follow it. I don't have the time, energy or knowledge and intelligence to be able to go and do a research module on why those things are in, uh, fundamentally linked. But all I know is that without sounding holistic, because I'm definitely not one of those people that thinks about, you know, the universe kind of working in my favor or not. Maybe that's there. You know, anything that sounds weird is just science. We've probably not proven yet, mm -hmm. but it's it's it just tells me there's something. And so mm -hmm. if it feels right, maybe do it. If it doesn't feel right, maybe don't. Like It's such a simple way to think about life, I guess. I think the way how I do it right now is there's definitely the heavily analytical part which i don't know makes my rational mind happy and maybe informs my guts i don't know if it does or, or not but if my so i think if my gut is telling me no it's definitely no that's what one thing i've learned if the gut says no it really should be a no there's something about it as long as it's not just me being scared or me feeling awkward. That's that's sure. not the gut telling you no. That's just you being afraid or being concerned about something that you... you that's always the opposite. If something's awkward, you probably should do it. <laughs> or if, if something scares you a little bit, you probably should do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so true. You're right. Yeah, there's a there's a no and there's like a, a, ner an, a nervousness. If it's nervous, yeah. maybe do it. Yeah. But if it's a definite no, do not. Like jumping out of a plane without a parachute is a no. If you've got yeah. a parachute on your back and you're a bit anxious, maybe. Exactly. Maybe 100%. Very good um, analogy. Yeah, that definitely helps. So I, I completely segued, but coming back to the two ideas. So I've got two ideas yes. that I'm happy to share. I'd love to see somebody steal them because I want to know if they work or not. Uh, I think one's more of a feature and the other one's possibly more of a business, but uh, but people can decide. So the first one is nano-influencer agency. I mentioned this to someone mm -hmm. yesterday. I've thought about this a bunch of times. I come from an agency background. If all else failed, I'd just start another agency tomorrow because I know how much I screwed up on the last few that like, I wouldn't probably, I'd likely not screw up this time and be able to get it right. Uh, what would I do as an agency? There's a bunch of things that I could and would do. There's, this is probably something I, I might not do, but therefore happy for somebody to steal it, which is influencers are a thing. We know they're a thing. They've been around for a while now. There are agencies that manage influencers. Um, you know, Kim Kardashian has a manager. Uh, PewDiePie has a manager, like all of these people have managers and they get brand deals as a result of having massive audiences. 
But I would argue that massive audiences have a failing in the fact that just like large communities, it's hard to find the common denominators. They're just pure mm. advertising plays. You've got loads of people that follow you. Therefore, if I put something on your channels, someone's going to buy it, hopefully enough that repay me the amount that I paid you in advertising. Great, fine. But actually, I think there's probably a power to be had in doing the same thing with micro or nano influencers, i.e. people at the other end of the popularity scale to those people that I mentioned before, but have really niche audiences who hang off their every word, right? Some people do hang off of every word that Kim Kardashian says, for example, but lots of people just, she's in a celebrity box mm. now, and so mm, it's fairly yeah. passive. But if I have someone who I listen to all day, every day, and I'm one of a few people that do listen to them, when they tell me to do something, I might be more inclined to engage with it, buy it, do something with it. And so curious to see if somebody could build an agency out of that. Go and find a hundred, a thousand people that have tiny niche audiences, build relationships with brands, and take them to those people. And this, I see this work from a, just a marketing channel point of view for small mm. businesses and startups anyway. People, you know, chatting to a girl, a woman in our community yesterday who has a um, subscription box that's uh, aimed at mental health and well-being, and uh, for women specifically. And um, she was like, there's so many people that are chatting about mental health and well-being online right now. She said, this seems to work for people that are, um, uh, I think, dealing with neurodiverse uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. It's like, great, cool. You can find people that are specific influencers around. I mm. find there are influencers around ADHD online right now. Um, and they're so small that you can chat to them. Like I, I listened to a podcast yeah, about yeah. ADHD. I tweeted the guy and he tweeted me back and was like, thanks. He just yeah. has a normal job, but he runs his yeah. spare time. So that would be one idea. Um, go and do that. And then the other one, which is more fun, possibly more of a feature, but I would just love it to exist. So I want someone to do something about it, which is I'm bad at reading. I'm not, I'm equally not that great at audiobooks because I still get distracted anyway. Um, but the audiobooks I love more than any other audiobook is the audiobooks, are the audiobooks that are re read out by their authors, right? I'm not a huge Gary Vee 100% agree. You agree too? 100% Everyone else seems to agree. I had the exact same experience. And I was Why thinking think about that it not so long ago. I think when... Man, I hate those audiobooks that are not read by the author. It's just like without a soul, without passion. It's just like somebody reading it like like they have the worst job in the world. And I, it's like there's, there's this extra passion that's added when yeah. the, the actual author is reading it. And it makes it so much more enjoyable to listen. It's, I would say it's very anecdotal, but I would say I'm probably like five times more likely to finish a book if the author is reading it. It's just, it just, it just like so much more interesting. So it's very subtle, agree. but it just makes a difference. The, the first time I realized this was really important to me was I, I'm not a huge fanboy of his because um, I know lots of people are like, he says some cool stuff and like incredible entrepreneur, but I reluctantly listened to uh, one of Gary Vee's books um, on audio. Yeah, so the first time I actually it. really valued him as a founder and a pr content pr producer, apart from his vlogs, which are great, but was because he read that book, but he gave you like four hours of extra content because he just went off on so many tangents, <laughs> yeah. and so much content. Yeah. And I was like, no one else could do this apart from the person who wrote this book. Well, granted, he probably wrote it with writers, but he's the expert, right? And so you get the, like you said, the energy, the passion, but also the extras. And so I just think that at the very least, I would love to see Audible create a category which is self-read audiobooks that I could just go through. That would be amazing. 
but I would also love somebody to go out there and if it's an app, great, or if it's more of an agency that says, right, we're gonna convince people to read their own audiobooks and here's why, then, and make it maybe part of a personal branding approach, um, then I'm yeah. all for it because I just think it's such a better experience. Yeah, I mean, if somebody's bold enough to take that on, I suppose you could start something like an Audible competitor that just does, might be really difficult. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, how do you get the authors? Um, they probably have exclusive contracts with uh, with Audible and so on and so forth. So not not my um, area, so I don't really know how exactly you would execute on that. Same. But um, yeah, I... I it's agree. That it's, right? uh, it's, uh, yeah. These these points on on this podcast is just like you just dangle those things out there and let somebody else run with it. And I'm not saying yeah. that this is going to be a great business. So this is my disclaimer: if you do it and you don't turn into a millionaire and it's is just a feature and it's not a business, don't come and shout at me because <laughs> I just shared it as an idea that I want to see in the world. But if you can figure it out, then I will be one of your first users. So come and tell me when you've done it if you do. Let do us it. know. Um, but yeah, um, I love that. What's the what's the best i stealable idea you've had so far? I'm curious. Oof, that's a great question. Um, I've had loads, and they're very very different from something that's very simple, like you know, yeah. and uh, you, you, like you can do it as a side hustle. It's gonna make some money. It's almost sure that it's gonna work. Two things that are like very, very purposeful, right? Um, things that the world really needs uh, that are going to really solve a, a problem, um, but they just don't exist right now. Which one would I say was the best one? You know what I should really do at some point? A list of all of them. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah, on the website. Put them, yeah, put them on the website somewhere. And be like, like here's, here's a list of all the ideas. Please, somebody, can somebody please do that? Uh, that's, that's a good point. I'll, I'll do that at some point and we'll put it on it's the great, website. Yeah. Great SEO. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you know, hopefully nobody steals this idea, but hopefully I'll be able to tick all those boxes with the, the thing that I'm working on right now and, and we'll bring to market hopefully as soon as I can. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out for that and I'll, I'll, I'll loop you in on more info when I can stop being cryptic about it. Um, uh, so, yeah, stay tuned. Nice. Perfect. All right. Well, Ash, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Matisse. Appreciate it. Have a, have a good rest of the day. Thank you, you too.